This is Reaganism, a podcast dedicated to exploring where the Reagan movement lives today. I'm Roger Zak. I'm your host, director of the Ronald Reagan Institute in Washington, D.C. On this episode of Reaganism, Roger sits down with Dr. John Hillen, the James C. Wheat Visiting Professor in Leadership at Hamden City College. He previously served in the U.S. Army for George W. Bush and as a business executive. Roger and John discussed leadership, what a conservative foreign policy should consist of, and how the United States should approach competition with China. Dr. John Hillen, welcome to the show. Hi, Roger. Good to be here. Thanks. Well, you're a person who wears many hats. The one that I'll, I'll begin with is that you are the James C. Wheat Visiting Professor in Leadership at Hampton Sydney College. Uh, that is what you do now. You previously taught at George Mason University's MBA program. Leadership seems to be a passion and focus, both as a business executive, as a leader in government. Tell us about the experiences, perhaps the Army and military as well we'll get to. What experience kind of helped you develop as a leader and why has that become the area of focus uh, in terms of your teaching? Yeah, no, thanks, Roger. Yeah, so, you know, there's only really one thing every human enterprise in the world has in common, whether it's a three-person volunteer church choir or IBM and everything in between. And it's a group of people working together, trying to accomplish something. So one of the things I learned in the Army and then transitioned from the Army to public policy and then transitioned from public policy to commercial business in New York City and then commercial businesses in the DC area, nonprofits and other things I've been involved with is they all share that that same thing. So I thought to myself um, along the way uh, with the help of some mentors and friends that I'm more interested in that dynamic, the dynamic of people working together, trying to accomplish something, than I'm necessarily interested in the exact specifics of whatever the institutions involved in. So it's been a theme of mine that just spans across, you know, a lot of different ventures, which is uh, I'm in the, the leadership game. That's the business I'm in. Whether I'm running a business, I've been a public and private company CEO, part of a university, you know, a nonprofit or otherwise. So working together, trying to accomplish something that makes sense in the world of business. It makes sense certainly as someone who's in the military. John, could you do that in government? I think most Americans, as you look at polling, feel like working together, trying to accomplish something is something that government and government leaders fall short of. What's your view? What's well, a little bit different, you know, government's not a business and it can't act like it. Um, but on the other hand, it should perform well for its stakeholders, you know, who are the American citizens and the taxpayers and all the other stakeholders, uh, and especially the side of the business I was in, in foreign affairs, you know, stakeholders outside of the country who have a, who have a stake, quite a literal stake in the conduct of U.S. foreign policy. So it's a little bit different. You can't control your workforce entirely, for instance. So... When I was an assistant secretary of state, I had, you know, 50 or 60 diplomats that were assigned to me, 50 or 60 military officers that were assigned to me from the Pentagon, a few hundred civil servants whose careers were there while mine would come and go from that position, their careers were there for a whole career. And so I had to work with the workforce I had, even though the mission was changing rapidly during the second half of the Bush administration. Uh, but that's part of leadership. That's part of the challenge is understanding the circumstances you're in um, and figuring out the essential task of leadership, which is generate followership around accomplishing something. And in that instance, the something was a big change from what the people in my bureau in the State Department have been doing for umpteen years uh, before that period in time. And so the leadership challenge was still there. It was just different. We'll, we'll get to your role in, in the Bush administration and, and that big change you just referenced. Uh, but it sounds to me like you believe it can be done as perhaps, uh, you know, when we repeat that, that mantra a lot here at, at the Reagan Institute. Reflect on the Army career. You did that for a dozen years, and um, both in terms of informing your outlook on leadership, but also what, what drove you to enter the service. I know was, there are Hillens who have served uh, for generations, uh, perhaps that was a driving force, but reflect on, on, on the military as a key ingredient in terms of shaping your leadership, your leadership outlook. 
So in some ways, the army is the family business. Uh, we go back to the American Civil War uh, in terms of service. Haven't hit every conflict, but but more than a few uh, in between the Civil War and up through my own service. Um, uh, my father was a career army officer. In fact, I grew up in the Washington, D.C. area just by happenstance, happenstance of a NVA bullet in 1970. He was uh, shot very severely uh, through uh, one leg and, and both arms in 1970 on a second tour in Vietnam and wound up recuperating at Walter Reed Hospital. Hmm. Family moved there to the D.C. area and ended up growing in D.C. while he had Pentagon assignments to convalesce and, and so on throughout his career. So it was the family business. But um, the reason I went in really had a lot to do with Ronald Reagan. He became president when I was in high school. And uh, when I was uh, applying to college, uh, we were in the middle of the Reagan buildup. And, uh, and I was a passionate Reaganaut, as we used to call ourselves back then, and an anti-communist. And uh, there was opportunity. And then for me, the opportunity came in the form of a four-year ROTC scholarship to you know, an expensive private university, which we wouldn't have otherwise been able to afford as a family uh, on an Army Lieutenant Colonel's salary. So, uh, and being a part of that kind of restoration of American confidence, the rebuilding of, in my family, the family business, but a beloved American institution in the U.S. military after the, uh, after the, uh, the kind of malaise and the hangover of Vietnam in the 1970s, uh, that was an exciting time to go in. So that was all part and parcel of deciding to go into the military in the mid-1980s. So a combo of the family business and President Reagan's leadership and, and focus on rebuilding the military, not just in terms of the military platforms, but actually getting good people like John Hillen to be motivated and enter the force. Thinking about the military today, John, just because you, you, your characterization and, and, and giving us that scene back when you entered the military, you know, it's kind of rhyming with some of the challenges we face today. Is the military too much of a family business? Are you concerned that perhaps we haven't had leadership in the White House in the form of the Commander-in-Chief really inspiring the next generation of Hillens uh, to enter the force. Yeah, I, I, I do worry about that. I mean, um, in fact, there was a good piece in the Wall Street Journal this past weekend by a former Army officer, now a law school student, about the changes in the military. And among the phenomenon that we've observed us military sociologists over the years is that a very large percentage now, plurality, of um, uh, military members come from other military families. Uh, this, of course, harkens back to something the founding fathers were very worried about, which is the idea of a, a military class, let alone a large standing army, right? Our tradition in America is that of the citizen soldier. And Washington, you know, more than anybody attempted to, uh, to set the tone for this, you know, the tone of Cincinnatus, put down right. forward and return back to the, to the plow and so on. But now we have a small, all-volunteer professional military. Uh, next year, we will celebrate the 50th anniversary of the American all-volunteer military. Fewer than 1% of people serve or have to serve because uh, we, we don't need that many people serving. So um, you start to wonder, how, how, can the, how can you square these circles? Uh, you need a volunteer, uh, highly educated, uh, enthusiastic, technologically adept professional military that's going to commit to professionalism, lots of training, lots of investment, not just dipping in and out. And yet at the same time, you have a big country, a big, diverse democracy that in which you want all classes, races, ethnicities, types of backgrounds as represented in the military as are represented in America. And striking that balance without uh, compulsion, I, th I think, is a difficult task. I'd like to see more good thoughts going into incentives to, to make these things square up. I think it makes for the healthiest uh, civil military relations in our system. Yeah, that's a great set of points. I mean, coming up on the 50th anniversary, we know we have to pay well. We know we have to recruit. We know we have to have a culture in, in the country which celebrates. But, you know, the, the, it's this less than 1% family business which seems to just dominate and, and and Americans, for the most part, are, are quite removed. Certainly, you felt it during uh, the height of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, and then um, in a different way in the, in, in the years since. 
something that we certainly focus on at, at the Reagan Institute in terms of looking at the military as an institution that has the trust and confidence in the American people. And, and as we've discussed elsewhere, that's, that's declining as well. Um, I want to move away from your, your service in the military and go back to your service in government. Was that a natural progression for you, John? Uh, military, kind of, you, you had that role in, in, in within the Beltway and think tanks, and then ultimately serving. So you always wanted to get to. Tell us about your arrival in Foggy Bottom, leading up the a bureau focusing on this, this really interesting portfolio of of giving U.S. Uh, military support to partners and allies around the world in the midst of, of, of the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan? Yeah, no, I was very lucky in the military. And as part of the Reagan's philosophy around the buildup, we always focus on the equipment, you know, and the Reagan buildup of the military. But it was as much about the ideas, the ethos, the doctrine, and of course, what Reagan could only give, that only a commander could give, he gave the military a strategy in essence, a purpose, a reason for being a strategy around which to wrap all the doctrinal and training and, uh, and uh, equipment initiatives that were happening at the time. So I was very lucky just to be a part of that, this, this uh, restoration, full-scale comprehensive restoration, top to bottom of the military. And uh, I got to meet people like H.R. McMaster. I was a young lieutenant, a scout platoon leader in a cavalry unit in Germany. Uh, right before the fall of the wall, and in walks, you know, an aggressive, young, incredibly smart captain named H.R. McMaster, who, of course, would go on, you know, to be a three-star general and the national security advisor. And, uh, and there were people like that sprinkled throughout our unit, uh, um, you know, many of whom went on to become uh, generals and, and so on. And so we didn't just discuss uh, tactics. Right. Uh, we discussed policy. And I remember once at the end of, I went through a desert storm in the Valley of the Seven Three Easting with uh, with HR McMaster and others. And we were up in Iraq, it was about April of 1991. And President H.W. Bush had, had issued a policy where he had encouraged the Shias to rebel against Saddam Hussein. But we had also concluded a detailed um, armistice agreement with Iraq at the end of the war that allowed Saddam Hussein to keep much of his equipment, his helicopters and others. So he was beating back the rebellion that we encouraged and we were just watching it and not allowed to do anything. So I'm sort of sitting up there on top of my Bradley fighting vehicle one night and, you know, puffing away on a cigar and, and quite literally watching this contradiction. <laughs> and I said to myself, you know, there's, there's gotta be, who thought through this? Who thought through this? How did this all come about? Sort of that moment that made me want to be a policymaker. Ironically, maybe 30 years later, I'm on a board, I'm chairing a corporate board onto which I had pulled Paul Wolfowitz, a great friend and for whom I have a huge amount of respect. And I told this story to Paul Wolfowitz, you know, former Undersecretary of Defense, former Deputy Secretary of Defense. And, and I, when I said the line about, you know, who in Washington could possibly be thinking of this? What idiot could have thought of this? <laughs> Wolfowitz looked at me and smiled. He said, I think I was, I was that guy. Uh, and, and then we had a nice conversation about the complexities of policymaking on his end. And I was only seeing it on the ground as a young, young soldier. And so I started to realize that, you know, there was a tremendous complexity behind this. It had to make sense all the way up and down the chain from Wolfowitz to Hillen in 1991 and all the parts in between in order to work well for the American people. So I started getting interested in that. And when that tour in the army ended, I went back to grad school to try to pursue, you know, the higher uh, elements of policy and strategy. Which, of course, you, you, you led at a very senior level during the Bush administration. But that complexity you're talking about and the need for it working at every level from the tactical up to strategic and the policymaker, I mean, this is something that you've been writing about and thinking about for literally decades now. Um, how did you enter the world of, of thought leadership? And then if I can also enter at this moment, it wasn't simply in the world of, of foreign policy and national security thought leadership. You've been a, a leader at National Review, National Review Institute, and, and have this very unique and interesting relationship going back with its founder, William F. Buckley. So uh, give us a little uh, sense of how, how that thread uh, developed over time as you were building your, your career, both uh, in the military and in the professional world. 
So after uh, graduate school, I was very fortunate. I got to study in the UK with two of the great strategic minds of the, of the 20th century, one still going, Professor Sir Lawrence Friedman, and then uh, the late Professor Sir Michael Howard. And so I, I sort of acquired a, a, a British way, if you will, of thinking through strategy. And I think that's apt. It's an apt characteristic. Uh, uh, different nations, because of their different heritages and experiences with strategy, come to it in different ways. So I sort of acquired that. And uh, in particular, the desire in expressing their strategy to do it uh, crisply and simply in writing. And so that was a skill I worked on in graduate school in the UK. So I landed in DC and started working at think tanks. I was at the Heritage Foundation. I was at the Council on Foreign Relations. I was at CSIS. And I'm bouncing around think tanks. So those are all kind of like the top tier uh, think tanks. Heritage Foundation, of course, being top tier conservative. Council of Foreign Relations for Foreign Policy and, and National Security and CSIS uh, would, would be the same. So you're hitting all the, the top brands as you come through D.C. Yeah, the, the top brands. And I'm putting out what as a public intellectual is, is your stock and trade, which is uh, op-eds, papers, books, going on television and so on. I... Um, was helping uh, craft then Governor Bush's foreign policy and defense speeches on the 2000, early 2000 campaign, the early parts of that. And um, I was doing that. And uh, I just started to realize that there was a missing element in American policy, which was a strategy, a plan, <laughs> comprehensive plan that connected the things we wish to accomplish as a nation on the world stage within the environment in which those things had to happen and assumptions about the environment and the other actors in that environment. And then the means we had to accomplish those things in that environment, and then the way it would all come together. You know, all the essential elements of a strategy, a game plan. And uh, so I started really needling down on that in my work and trying to you know, orient us towards Let's talk about first things instead of just throwing out policies and throwing out budgets. Yeah, and I, I want to jump into that in a second because it's it's been a common area of focus for you, even though we we're talking whatever decade we're in, the 90s, you know, the first decade of the, uh, of the century where we are today. Um, but give me the, the, the national review piece. How does that fold into it and, and your relationship with Buckley before we, we jump into this area where you've, you've had a consistent voice trying to challenge perhaps the uh, other voices in the foreign policy and national security landscape? Yes, so I was writing for think tanks and a couple of my things popped up on National Review's radar screen. And um, the editor had taken over from Bill Buckley, the founder of National Review, a fellow named John O'Sullivan, called me up and he said, and he's, and he's British. And he said, I recognize your writing style. And he, he basically said, you're too sassy to write for uh, think tanks for the rest of your life. Um, we write with uh, humor, we write with wit, we write with a little bit of sting, with style, uh, high intellectual um, repartee at National Review, which I knew of course, but didn't do well. So um, I went up, met O'Sullivan, met, met William F. Buckley Jr. Uh, told him my Reagan story, which perhaps perhaps will come on to, which involved him, right. and, and joined the magazine now 25 years ago in 1997 as a contributing editor. Um, our uh, friend, uh, the late Peter Rodman, and I were the defense duo at National Review for for many years. So it was your, your writing style that caught the attention and 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 brought you into the world of National Review. But we'll get get into it a little bit later in terms of your continued involvement and and. In leadership at, at National Review, but let, let's go back to this kind of role and voice uh, you've had in this foreign policy and national security landscape. You know, what you're doing in the 1990s where, you know, America during the Clinton years is trying to figure out its role in this unipolar moment and where, what should foreign policy look like to, you know, the years of the Iraq, Afghanistan wars uh, to the world today. You've consistently pushed forward a, a line where America needs to be a leader in the world, but you're not quite in the world of, of neoconservatives where we're getting involved in, in, in everything or, or too much. Um, but you're not a, a restrainer either, John Helen. You're not somebody who is, who is 
can we ever be accused of, of falling into a neo-isolationist camp? And, and it's interesting to me as I've looked at your writings over these decades, um, your voice is, is, is always there kind of addressing this gap in between these kind of the, the loudest voices. Kind of take our listenership and our viewers through how uh, your outlook in terms of what America's role in the world is, and, and then through that, I mean, it's really, it's consistent seems to be your interpretation of what Reaganism means, at least as it relates to uh, foreign policy and American leadership in the world. Yes, so, you know, shorthand for what I generally believe about the U.S. role in the world, our posture on the global stage, the kind of actions we may take or not take, the, the shorthand for it, you might say, is the middle way, you know, the via media, uh, you know, the not too hot, not too cold, but just right sort of solution. That's simplistic and a classic like staff methodology. Um, but I do think that there's been so much energy around the poles, the opposite poles. One is a kind of hyper interventionism, um, you know, it's, it's especially among our friends on the right. And uh, on the other side, still among friends on the right, is, is a reluctant, disengaged nationalism. Some might even call, call it isolationism. I think you know, the labels don't help us, but, it, but a kind of disengagement. It hasn't been helped. You know, the last uh, few Democratic presidents have been disengagers themselves, uh, from Clinton wanting to take advantage of the peace dividend, to Obama saying we're going to figure out a way to lead from behind, to you know, President Biden, you know, along with President Trump, criticizing endless wars or um, and you know, long, long commitments and cost and, and and things like that. There were just these notes on both sides that struck me as a, a little bit divorced from not only the reality of making policy, but the reality of leading in the world. And this is where I think this joint academic portfolio I've had for years now, where I teach both leadership and strategy at both the graduate business school level and the undergraduate level, um, that's where they come together. Strategy is the unique uh, province of the leader in many ways, and leaders need to have a strategic mind. And so, so, so I think the real difference is the, the disengagers, the disengaged nationalists ha have an underappreciation for the inability to lead on the world stage when one is disengaged. And this is why leading from behind didn't work for President Obama and it won't work for the United States of America. Leaders generate followership, as I mentioned before. It's the essential task. Leadership is a process to generate followership around a plan and a vision to accomplish something, the benefits of which are obvious to everybody, or at least all the stakeholders for that leader. So that's the job, that's the drill. And uh, you can't lead if you're not out there. And uh, so I think the United States needs to be out there in a muscular, unapologetic way. Right, but there's a flip side, John. Maybe you're going to get to this because you've also been a, a leading voice in, in terms of saying, well, okay, this leadership, right. this muscular leadership also comes with limitations or some constraints or a need for choices. And that, that's where you would deviate perhaps from, you know, it's generally viewed as a neoconservative camp or, you know, for this overextension or, you know, kind of people who are engaging too much in, in foreign policies and where perhaps the United States, in your mind, uh, should not lead. Well, exactly. That's the other side of it. So now I've established that you're anti your baseline for leading in the world, generating followers around something, doing something, is to be out there, being out front, and leading muscular, on stage, unapologetic. Now, the A-plus question is, how do I be selective? How do I discriminate among the many different choices and the many activities I have? Um, how do I uh, make choices this is the essence of all great strategy, trade-offs, choices, allocating resources, balancing priorities, sequencing events, understanding dependencies between things. And you know, a point I made in a piece I did years ago called Superpowers Don't Do Windows, how do I mobilize the other people on the team to do their bit that may be more qualified for certain tasks in international security 
than the United States. Um, and so how do I put all those pieces together? And I think that's the piece that um, neoconservatives or hyper-interventionalists underappreciate on their end. They underappreciate that discrimination is the essence of statecraft. Deciding what not to do is often as important for the strategists as deciding what to do. And once, of this, once again, this goes back to my lessons from, from leadership. I've been very blessed to have been in charge of a number of different organizations, ranging from public companies you know, on, on, on through to nonprofits. And, and what, I, what I learned in that was it's as important to decide what not to do as it is to decide what to do. And I think people that are merely commentators or intellectuals or others that haven't had, you know, perhaps the, the baptism of institutional leadership uh, discount or, 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 or don't count on that. Right. And the difference between, you know, making a point that seems uh, compelling when it's on a PowerPoint slide, but knowing what it means when it has to face the reality of implementation and execution, right? That, that, that experience will perhaps, you know, makes you a little more disciplined. And, and as you, what you're continue using here is, you know, discriminating in, in those choices. But, but let's, so let's bring this out of the realm of theory and back down to your question about Reagan. So, you know, it's very easy to expropriate Reagan's legacy and cherry pick bits of it and use it to make your point. Um, in Never here at the Reaganism podcast have you know that, John. We do not do that here. <laughs> Never yet. But it has been done. But, <laughs> okay. but, but here's the way. I, here's the way I would do it. Um, so Reagan did have a grand vision and a very coherent and comprehensive grand strategy for um, for uh, taking a different stance against the Soviet Union than his uh, than his predecessors, the three presidents who came before him. Uh, it's been misinterpreted. I think that he just wanted to force us into confrontation. Um, Reagan, now you can see in his own writing, has been revealed by a lot of scholars was very happy to get detente uh, as a result, so long as it was from a position of American strength that forced the Soviets to moderate their behavior and restrain themselves. At that, up to that point, detente had been pursued for its own sake, not for what it could deliver. And so we were happy enough that there were a calmer relations with the Soviet Union but we overlooked during the Nixon, Ford, and Carter administrations that, this, that the Soviet Union used this period of detente to improve its strategic position, to not moderate its behavior. It got more aggressive, not less aggressive, and the U.S. strategic position weakened as a result. So Reagan, Reagan was fine with improved behavior and improved relations with the Soviet Union, as he showed in the second half of his administration, but he was going to do it from a position of strength. And he was going to force the issue by by getting it back. I'm not sure we ever call that detente. I mean, you've essentially redefined it with that kind of <laughs> explanation of a detente that Reagan would be comfortable with. I mean, there was always this element that, yeah, it had the, the we had to do it from position of strength, and the Soviets had to change their behavior, which was you know quite different than detente of, of Kissinger and Nixon in the '70s, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so, so a, a different flavor, but he, but he was. He was fine with an outcome of, uh, and I'll you know come back to one of my favorite quotes later about how he summed up his strategy. But he was fine with an intermediate outcome of the Soviet Union moderating the behavior, which in the second half of administration, sometimes against the advice of his senior advisors, he really leaned towards. So he had this grand strategic vision. It was very comprehensive, economic and psychological and intelligence aspects, not just the military aspect we focus on. It was a total package as a grand strategy, and it was ambitious and comprehensive. But at the same time, Roger, Casper Weinberger, with Reagan's blessing, issued probably the most restrictive set of rules on the use of military intervention, American military intervention, that the U.S. has had in many years, the so-called Weinberger Doctrine, with a set of six or seven rules about let's make sure this is in place and that's in place and we have these conditions and, and this is necessary before we intervene anywhere. And, and so this is what I mean by you can have both of these pieces. You can be muscular and forward and leading on the world stage, and yet at the same time be prudent, uh, husbanding your power as an American nation, conscious of the sacrifices you might ask of the nation, and not being reckless. Yeah. And Let's pull a thread on this a bit more because naturally you make this distinction, you focus on Weinberger, you're discriminating. 
and of course, the critique of neoconservatives has been that there's been, and, and you're, you've participated in this critique, you've written on it, you've spoken on it, uh, over-reliance on, on, on the military. In your outlook, John, this middle of roadism, my words, not yours, approach, what is the place for advancing freedom, the freedom agenda, human rights, huge part of, of, of President Reagan's legacy, something I know you care deeply about, when you're discriminating and making these choices in foreign policy, what does the process and evaluation look like as you're dealing with this challenge? We could take it to you know, Saudi Arabia today, and President Biden's visit there, and the fist bump around the world, uh, some of the other uh, uh, you know, human rights challenges that we see you know, dealing with, with the Chinese Communist Party that is committing genocide against the Uyghur population. So how, how, how do you process that thread in the foreign policy engine? Yeah, well, well, the moral plank has to be in the platform. It has to be in the American platform, and not just even the you know, Republic or conservative platform for conducting foreign affairs. That's a given. I, I'm with Kissinger on this, for whom I have great regard when he said, you know, it's a false debate about American interests versus American values. Our values and our interests are inextricably intertwined. And especially on, on the moral aspect, especially America's uh, place in promoting freedom around around the world is is very important um i wrote recently a, a piece about freedom and noted that freedom house is somewhat depressing recent study that only 20 percent of the population of the world lives in some degree of what they would call true political freedom so we're marching backwards as a world uh in, in many ways in terms of political freedom i think the u.s needs to take that up but here's where you get to discrimination so you're you're forward leaning you're unapologetically promoting freedom around the world but you choose where and how you do it uh instead of just beating everybody with a blunt uh uh instrument this was the great contribution in some ways of Jeannie kirkpatrick um, who I got to know later in life and helped me with my first book. When she came to Reagan's attention, she had she had written a piece uh, called Dictators uh, and Double Standards and saying, why are we only beating on the right-wing dictators? Why are we only taking on their uh, abuses and we're ignoring what's happening uh, in the communist world uh, whose, whose sins, whose recorded sins, thanks to Robert Conquest and others, uh, are, are now revealed are so much greater. You know, so much greater than, you know, the you know the El Salvadorian government in the 1980s and so on, as 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 lamentable as many of its actions were, and so, you know, Jeannie Kirkpatrick introduced this idea to Reagan in many ways that you can you, you can pick these things while still having a strong moral platform about how and where you undertake them. So, coming to my own career in the Bush administration, I was once uh, undergoing a pretty tough hearing with the House. Foreign Affairs Committee on the Hill about Pakistan and our relationship with Pakistan and the things we had done for Pakistan militarily. And I just asked the members of Congress, all of whom were sour about the idea because of Pakistan's human rights records and Pakistan's openness and Pakistan's perhaps, you know, what some people may consider to be some double dealing with the United States at times in its history. And I said, look, does Pakistan matter? And they said, yes, it's really unfortunate, but it matters. And I said, you know, um, then if it matters, is it better for us to have access and influence in Pakistan than not? And we have to talk seriously about the ways for access and influence. Sometimes it's standing outside with moral approbation and trying to change the place by mobilizing the international community like we did with apartheid in South Africa um, and, and taking that stance. And sometimes it's being there, being there and moving and acting on the ground to move people along. What Reagan knew was a very uneven, what he called the March of Freedom and Democracy in the Westminster speech. It's a very uneven road. And everybody's travel on the road is a little bit different. So I just think there's a way for the US to be smart about this, make it uh, a constant in its portfolio of things it cares about, but do it in a bright way. And, and this is where I differ with you know, my friends on the right who are, who are uh, preaching disengagement and retrenchment. The U.S. can't just do this as an exemplar. Right. Leaders, there are some leadership styles. We call it the pace-setting style of leadership and leadership studies. There are some leaders that can do like Michael Jordan, right? He could just be an example. Just do what I do. Work as hard as I work. Play as hard as I play. And then that's enough. That's enough of a leadership style. That's not enough in a complex international environment. You have to be out there doing it. 
And so I think, you know, we can actually do both these things at the same time. We can stand for human rights and freedom, and yet we can be smart and recognize where it sits in the complexity of priorities and sequencing and dependencies around all our other policies. Let's jump to perhaps the most complex foreign policy question, which contains all of these elements, uh, in many respects unprecedented uh, in terms of the United States, our history, foreign policy challenges, that's China, and specifically Taiwan. Um, that is the, seems to be the, the biggest challenge we face in the bilateral relationship um, today in terms of a democratic country where there's territorial claims, a complex policy the United States has uh, going back decades, strategic ambiguity, all of these elements, military, militarily, economically, politically. Well, what's your organizing theory for how we approach uh, China and specifically Taiwan and and when you come down in terms of uh, where the United States should be vis-a-vis uh, -vis Taiwan, um, strategic ambiguity, keep it, chuck it. Uh, do we need to be more supportive? Do we let the Speaker of the House go into Taiwan? She has, of course, made the decision to go in. I mean, take us through how, how you, the lens through which you evaluate uh, and think about this tremendous challenge. Yeah. Well, you know, for many years I was where where I, I think Reagan, you know, was on the general notion that uh, liberalizing economic systems and introducing economic freedom to people could quickly be followed by uh, political liberalization. And in fact, Reagan made much of that, you know, with the Soviet Union, he, he saw the intelligence agencies beginning to say in 1981, 1982, that, um, you know, the Soviet Union's military colossus was economically creaky, uh, if not perhaps on its last legs. And Reagan and the National Decision Directive in 1983 really put, uh, put uh, the meat on the bones of an economic policy meant to apply pressure to the Soviet Union economic policy, and at the same time supporting dissidents, pushing for political liberalization. But he thought, and we all thought, that these things inevitably flow from, e from each other. And I think I thought that well up until the time of the Bush administration. I remember being in an office with you know, an old friend and mentor, Bob Zellick, when he was the Deputy Secretary of State. And he was on his way to China to give the famous no, He's the father of that approach, right? And he's credited as the father of this approach. Yeah, and, and he was on his way to China to give the responsible stakeholder speech, right. which was a good speech and a great concept. Um, and at the time, probably, I think from the time of Ding Xiaoping, on up through about that period in the early 2000s, still salvageable, maybe just. I think what we now know 20 years later and a little bit earlier, thanks to the great work of people like Matt Pottinger and David Fife and Aaron Friedberg, and gosh, I think Mike Pillsbury was out there, you know, ahead of all of them in, in, in some ways. Uh, but we now know that um, the Chinese government used the neoliberal bargain, free markets, uh, uh, pluralistic political systems, open world trade, a, a security system bolstered by US power, a financial system right on up through currency of last resort bolstered by, by, by US economic strength. So we sponsored the rules of the game. And we now know that China used the game to get wealthy and powerful but has no intention of liberalizing politically. In fact, they've gone the other way in the past five years. They exploited it. Yeah. Uh, the party is firmly in control. And I think, and I agree with, with Stephen Cochran at Princeton here, he said, you know, it turns out the Chinese were the better communists than the Russians. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 because they really do believe control. We now know from their own writings, from their own speeches, as Pottinger and Fife and others have revealed, we now know control, controlled by the CCP, by the party, is absolutely central to, to not just politics in China, but to the entire Chinese experiment. In the same way, I would say the essential element of the American experiment since 17, you know, 76, 1787 is freedom. The essential element of the Chinese experiment today is control. They're very methodical, very planned. So I, I, I think the, I don't want to say the veil has fallen and we all can see clearly now you can choose your own metaphor. 
but we now know what game we're in. Uh, we now know what kind of confrontation we're in. And yet at the same time, we're inextricably linked with China economically. You know, they're 30% of the world's manufacturing, they're 18% of the world's GDP. The Soviet Union at its height never got close right. to kind of economic penetration. And we never certainly had an economic dependency on the Soviet Union. And so how do we, um, without committing economic suicide, uh, decouple ourselves from China in key areas where they are taking advantage of the system we built and underpin with American blood and treasure, uh, and yet they'll use the uh, their their results from being in that system to uh, in ways that are inimical to our interests now and in the future. So how do we decouple in key areas that preserve our advantage, that deny them um, advantage at our expense in these areas without committing economic suicide? How do we bring the economic relationship, which is one of uh, great trading partners and intimate economic interdependency, into balance with the political and military relationship, which is largely one of confrontation around the Indo-Pacific and a battle of competing institutional ideas about how a society. So uh, brilliantly outlined and, and organized, and, and you know, we, we need to have this political and military advantage, but also not commit an economic suicide, and so that should inform you know, this decoupling. Taiwan, though, hit on Taiwan, because that is, the, if you were going to brief, you know, the President of the United States or the Republican nominee, they're, they're, well, Helen, tell me, yeah. I get all that, that makes sense, what do I do about Taiwan? Yeah, well, I'm, I'm a big supporter of uh, our uh, implied defense responsibility to Taiwan in the event that it is uh, coerced uh, or invaded by China with the intent of enforcing the one China system to, to, to which we have, have, have said, you know, we, we believe in the one China system, but not under, dis, under uh, coercion and not under duress. So I believe very much in uh, the Taiwanese, let alone the Chinese, knowing that uh, the US and our allies in the Pacific, I found, you know, I used to have to manage my part of the coalition of the not so willing. And I found that working in teams, just like you do in, in your day jobs is the best way to get things done. So I think it's important that the Taiwanese and Chinese know that the US and its allies will not let any kind of unification happen under terms set with coercion by China and without the full, and I would add democratic um, uh, approval of the Taiwanese. So what does that mean in real life? I think it means you, you can argue about the wording of the policy. You can argue about how much ambiguity there is, but I think uh, a Hillen policy would be uh, a forward-leaning one, a forward-leaning one that would make very clear to the Chinese in Taiwan that this is not going to happen by force, and it's not going to happen under duress, and it's not going to happen by coercion, political, subtle, military, or otherwise. You know, we, we're going to go back to how you became a Reaganite. I'd love for you to share that story. It's... I don't know, unusual, but certainly uh, uh, not not the standard uh, kind of story of somebody getting excited listening to Reagan on the on the campaign. But you go back during the campaign, and talking about 1980, and President Reagan, even then, with the China so different from China's today, was uncomfortable with our you know, Taiwan Relations Act and this one China policy. Seemed to be always hesitant. Um, to not stand with the democracy and the free people of Taiwan and, and accommodate, you know, the, the, the law that you know, Congress had passed just a few years prior to, to him running for president. Um, at the time, they wanted to say, well, he either lacked sophistication or was a warmonger, kind of, in retrospect, the issues that he was wrestling with, of course, are, uh, in some respects, prescient. Um, he foresaw. So uh, just kind of that little bit of history and, and what we're dealing with today <clears throat> um, is, is somewhat revealing. But John, tell us about the Panama Canal and your passion for that issue and how that made you a Reaganite uh, and, and brought in the world of, uh, of Buckley as well. Yeah, so um, January 1978, there's a very famous uh, frontline debate 
Uh, Famous for all those watchers of PBS and Foodline, which of course, you know. <laughs> Two hour long debate at night on PBS, very well watched back in the day. And there was good television, 1970, you know, Happy Days, Laverne and Shirley and so on. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, but this was, I was uh, about to turn 12. As I mentioned, I was uh, growing up in the DC area. I'd just taken on a Washington Post paper route. So I'm a paper boy. So now I'm sitting out at the curb at, you know, 5.45 in the morning, flipping through the headlines, wondering what, what all this stuff means on, on the cover of the Post. And uh, the summer prior, my family had built a garage addition onto the house. And what's better for a you know, 10, 11 year old boy than playing in the dirt with all the machines and running around in the ditches. And I think I you know, replayed World War I the entire time, trenches and so on. So, so I had a feeling about digging and trenches and value. Uh, and, and, and Which takes you to Panama. But I wasn't quite Halford McKinder at this point, um, but those were my budding geopolitical sensibilities going into this debate which i watched you know with my father so it was about the specific treaties in front of the senate in january of 1978 which had been negotiated for years across multiple administrations to to over the course of the next 20 years up through 1999 give back control of the panama canal and the panama canal zone to the panamanians both the canal and the zone having been u.s sovereign territory much like Guantanamo Bay or, you know, um, other overseas bases and territories, um, give it back. And so uh, Reagan was against the treaties as they were currently construed. And you could have found many people to argue for them, including from the Carter administration. But the cleverness of the debate was they set up a group of conservatives to argue against Reagan, including his great friend, William F. Buckley, who was for the proposition and was supported by George Will, and James Burnham. So this is like a murderer's row. Yeah, formidable intellects. Oh yeah, and all anti-communist credentials that would have made Whitaker Chambers blush. <laughs> um, and so, you know, a very formidable lineup. And I watched that and I thought, understanding a little bit about debate and argument, I thought Reagan just, he, he killed it. He crushed me. Fact-based, geopolitical, sober, um, thoughtful, in command, and I and I thought Buckley, especially Dan Buckley, is this, you know, this incredible personality, one of the people I admire, you know, the most in the world. But he struts around like a peacock at the end. He gives um, this amazing closing statement, but it's all kind of full of what I'll call sort of liberal pieties in in, in some ways about you know the Panamanians deserve what we fought for in the revolution, and I'm like, wait. I thought we were talking about shipping, national emergencies, the ability to maintain a complex engineering infrastructure, you know, all these other things that Reagan was on about. So later in life, I told Buckley, I said, you know, he said, how'd you become a conservative? I said, well, I started with Reagan because I thought he just crushed you in the famous debate in 1978. So Buckley was very taken aback because he never lost an argument in his own mind. Um, and, uh, and I explained why. And we agreed to disagree, but it was a funny moment that brought those two parts of my life together. But I was I was a Reaganite from that point point on. Amazing. Um, we're going to wrap up here, John. We've already talked about a number of Reagan's speeches and uh, stories, uh, including the Panama Canal debate. But of course, we always end with our lightning round, where we ask our guests to share their favorite Reagan speech and quote. And book, uh, you can give us all three, two, or just one. What do you have to share? Sure. Well, on books, I've got a couple. My friend Kieran Skinner's book, Reagan in His Own Hand, is is indispensable for anybody wanting to understand the mannerist times. And I think the great aha out of it for some of our friends in the mainstream is that this was a thoughtful man with a profoundly deep and well-shaped and articulated worldview well before he became president. Okay, this, this was not an empty person with ideas. He had a formidable intellect and a formidable formation. And I think that that book, you can see it. I mean, my favorite book about Reagan, really, I, although I think is, is Stephen Hayward's two-volume political biography because he was this old- Age of Reagan, yeah. Yeah, does the man make the times or does the times make the man? Well, the answer is yes, both. And Stephen captures that with sort of one volume on the times and one volume on the man. Um, and so, you know, I, I think it's very easy. 
the memoirs of his the people he worked with are good but schultz's is my favorite i got a chance to meet george schultz by um later in life so i would say that's on books that's a that's that's a tune and it's all right these are, these are these are heavy books you're recommending here yeah these are heavy <laughs> books but we have a lot of time time on our hands these days uh, <laughs> the uh you know on on speeches i mentioned the panama canal debate it wasn't a speech per se but the other one that impacted a couple impacted my life the first inaugural my father had been in iran up until the time of the revolution as an american military advisor there and so we watched the revolution and the hostage crisis very closely. And I grew up in a house full of samovars and Persian carpets from Iran and everything else. And the moment of watching the inauguration of Reagan and the announcement of the hostages being released within minutes of each other and the inaugural speech was just, you, you got a sense that the worm had turned. Mm. You know, the, that was the original America is back moment. You know, to my mind, Washington, 1980. And then, of course, you know, our, our, our friend Peter Robinson's speech for Reagan, you know, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I, I love that about Reagan. I love his, you know, he asked for a favorite quote, my Cold War strategy, we win, they lose. Great leaders simplify without being simpletons. Warren Bennis, a great leadership writer, said the first task of a leader is to define reality for followers. And that needs to be done in simple terms, not Simplicity on this side of complexity, as Oliver Wendell Holmes once said, but simplicity on the other side of complexity. So you worked through all the complexity and you found a way to communicate in a simple, profound way, direction, meaning, purpose, perhaps even you know tactics and, 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 and some other things. And Reagan just had a genius for that. And his ability to go over there he referred to the Berlin Wall, if you remember Roger in his Westminster speech, he called it a great gray gash dividing Berlin. And then to go over there five years later, the man wall come down, and then to be a young soldier, literally patrolling the Iron Curtain the month the wall came down. And I have a piece of the, the fence, I have a border sign in, in my library at home. You know, those kind of things all wrapped together in a way for me that just made me appreciate Reagan's um, trajectory as a leader and a strategic thinker. Um, you know, I would say on books, Hal Brands has written a very good treatment of Reagan's strategy, um, but I don't think there's been a leadership book written about Reagan yet that really captures this essence of what I'm talking about, this process of generating. Uh, I think we have a mandate for a leadership, a professor of leadership in the next book, perhaps, John. There could be, there could be, but I, but I don't think there's, there's one out yet, so there's an opening. John Hillen, thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you, Roger. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Reaganism. New episodes premiere weekly every Monday on YouTube and all podcast streaming platforms. If you like this episode, be sure to let us know and share with a friend.